lovely listeners, Kirk here with a special interview for you all. A little while back, I had a really interesting conversation that I hope you'll all enjoy with a guest that I'm so happy to have met and to have had on the show. Lily E. Hirsch is a musicologist and author. She's written a whole bunch of books on subjects ranging from Jewish music in Nazi Germany to the application of music in American crime prevention to, more recently, a wonderful book on Weird Al Yankovic called Weird Al Seriously, and just this year, a new book called Can't Stop the Girls, Confronting Sexist Labels in Music from Ariana Grande to Yoko Ono. Most of those subjects go well beyond the kinds of things that I usually talk about on Strong Songs, which I thought made her an ideal guest for the show. So I reached out, and back in February, we hopped on a Zoom call and had a far-reaching conversation about a bunch of different topics. I do want to say up front that while most of this conversation is nice and light, we do occasionally get into some heavier stuff, topics like the use of music as torture or the abuse and harassment suffered by women in music. So some kind of tough topics are interspersed in there, though like I said, it's just a small part of the overall discussion. Just figured that I would mention that up front. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this conversation with musicologist and author Lily E. Hirsch. Lily Hirsch, welcome to Strong Songs. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here. The reason that we're talking, the first, uh, the first of your work that I encountered was actually an interview with you in Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter, which was about music in crime prevention that I thought was just fascinating. It was a kind of out of left field uh, newsletter that I got. You know, she writes about all kinds of things and publishes. This was actually an interview done by someone else that she published. And it was the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing I've thought about a lot, but obviously have never done any research into. And I just read it with fascination. And I thought, Lily Hirsch, this person seems very interesting. I should have her on Strong Songs. <laughs> well, thank you. And it's great to be here. That The young lady who interviewed me for that is really lovely. We had such a great conversation. She was so curious. I could have talked with her all day. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very interesting. You've written about all of these different topics. You're a very like musically omnivorous person in terms of your interest. I want to talk about all of those things. We'll get into, you know, the things you've written about in your books and these these various topics, but I'm curious how someone becomes an author covering so many different topics in the world of music. Like it's just a it's a it seems like it would be a very interesting career path. So my first question is how did you get started in music? What was your sort of musical awakening like? Well, it was young. I took music lessons as a kid, like a lot of people do. I took piano, mm -hmm. um, okay. and my piano teacher, uh, starting at age seven, was a, just a wonderful lady. She became kind of a, a, a part of my family, a, a kind of role model, and and I took lessons with her straight on through till college. Um, and oh, we, wow, the same teacher. Same teacher. And we played music, obviously, but sometimes I would just talk with her. She was just a wonderful mm -hmm. person in my life. Um, and and really fostered that a love of music. She had this idea that it, you didn't always have to play the right notes if you were feeling the music. So music mm. really became a, a kind of an outlet for me um, with her. Um, and then I got I was in a children's choir and I really got into singing. And singing is something that I became serious about. I think the piano was personal and singing. I thought I could become an opera singer, so I started doing competitions and things like that. And 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 then I eventually went to this small conservatory of music in California, um, and I 
first thought maybe I'd be a singer. I wanted to be vocal performance, but okay. um, but I was always a pretty serious student, and I just didn't quite have the natural talent <laughs> that it takes. I put in a lot of hours in the practice room, but it's just, there was just nothing I could do there. Um, mm. And probably didn't help that they made me take ballet to help with my stage presence, and that was, <laughs> that was a pretty brutal experience. Anyways... Um, so I decided on majoring in music history, and it was this idea that I liked the study of history, I liked writing a lot, and I thought music history would combine all of my interests. Um, and then I studied abroad uh, in Vienna, and I was there at a kind of interesting political moment uh, where music and politics kind of came together, and I, I really mm. became hooked on what music can do um, in the concert hall, but also everywhere else. Um, so then I decided to go to graduate school, um, and I went to Duke and musicology. Um, and, and I did a kind of traditional dissertation and then I just really went rogue. I guess that's, that's <laughs> my, that's my villain origin story in music. Nice. That is interesting. There are these kind of inflection points in that path, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I look at my own path and think the same thing. I think anyone, especially once you're kind of an adult, if you're in the world of music, you look back at these points of, you know, these important musical points in your development. This first thing with a private teacher is mm -hmm. crucial for a lot of people. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people just kind of get lucky yes. with one private teacher or maybe mm -hmm. a band director. What do you think about that, about the fact that a lot of it just comes down to, did you happen to live in the same neighborhood as the right person who was teaching the right instrument at the right time? Yeah, I think I was really lucky. Um, my my mom was not particularly musical, and she happened mm. upon this teacher, and it was just a real lucky match. Um, this woman, uh, her name is Joy Willow. She is very artistic. Oh, a lovely name. She, it is a beautiful, very musical name. Mm -hmm. And she had a lot of different interests. And she was just, she's just a wonderful person. I'm still in touch with her um, today. That is lucky. Hopefully parents are aware of that, uh, though, and they can kind of help. Um, my kids both are, are taking private music lessons now. They're young kids. Um, and uh, my daughter started out with one teacher, and the teacher was very serious, really wanting to work on mm. technique. And I thought, that's not the way we want to go right away. I really want my daughter to just love music at first. And so now she has this violin teacher who is just hilarious, and it's so fun, and I laugh in the other room just listening to their lessons. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, that's a piece of advice that I actually sometimes wish I would take more myself, but that I always give people is to don't be afraid to try multiple teachers. Yeah. You don't mm -hmm. have to just pick someone and then hope they're the exact right fit. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, I'm sure that your desire to have that kind of a teacher for your daughter is related to you having had that yeah. kind of a teacher growing up. How do you compare that experience with the experience of being a serious, you know, opera student and sort of pursuing performance for a while? Oh, that's a tough question. I think you have <laughs> to have the love first if you mm. are going to then be able to put in the time and the work that that requires. And then you need all the technique and you need all of that serious discipline. But if you don't have that underlying love, it's going to be really hard. Um, and even then, I, in my journey with singing, um, in college, you know, I did the jury at, at the end of each semester, and I really mm -hmm. started listening to my own voice in a very critical way. And I did lose the fun when it came to singing over time. 
um, which is a shame. And I, I hope that I figure out a way back to singing. But piano, I never lost the love for um, because I oh, never. Yeah, because I never went that direction with piano, which is it's interesting. But that's a tricky balance. It is a hard one. I found I, I had a similar experience with saxophone just in that I was a saxophone performance major mm-hmm. and really critically listened to my mm-hmm. playing. I was at you know, a heavy jazz program playing all the time with other students who were amazing. I mean, some of the people I went to school with are like the top sax players in New York right now. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that critical listening of recording yourself, which is tough to do when yes. you you think you're good. And then suddenly you listen to a recording. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so far from, you know, my idols, from the people I really want to sound like, or even from my peers sometimes, that it can start to feel impossible. And it does kind of, it takes away the just playful, the play, the the joy of play. And I find too, um, I've been playing a lot of guitar lately, taking lessons and getting better. And that instrument, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be a professional guitar player in the same way that I was on saxophone, and I am able to find just a, a joy in playing yeah. just because it's really fun, and I don't have the same expectations of myself. Yeah, I think there's something to that, and I think I need to do a little more of that and experiment. Um, I, I, I married a man whose family is really involved with bluegrass, and they oh, cool. all yes, and they all play by ear, which is something I never mm-hmm. learned. I was you know always by the I needed the music, I needed the score, um, and and they really have this love. It's all you know about the feeling. They play by ear. Mm-hmm. It's this wonderful thing, and they're always. It seems like they're always trying to lure me back. And uh, <laughs> my husband's dad, he actually built and made a dulcimer and he gave it to me, hoping really? that I would take to this <laughs> and I could kind of sing. And they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're wonderful people to be around. And I, I, I feel the love just being around them. That's so cool. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful energy. That, and yeah. there's also that communal thing to folk music and bluegrass where you yes. make the music with other people, yes. which is something that I feel a lot in mm-hmm. both in being whatever, like making a podcast and making music by myself and increasingly doing everything myself. And yeah. that's more and more possible. I think that was reinforced somewhat by music school and specifically by a performance program because you yeah. spend so much time focusing on your own instrument your own craft you know mm-hmm. your own technique and then you go you do juries which you yes. stand by yourself for right. anyone who hasn't gone to music school listening to this you have to stand alone in front of like the faculty of your school and perform and it's terrifying and it's yes. so laser focused on the individual yeah there are ensembles of course but when i think about all of the learning i did so much of it was the truest learning happened when i was just sitting around with friends yes playing music and that's what folk music is all about it's just like yes you you can practice, I guess, but let's just sit to you know sit together and play a song and see what happens. Yeah, and there's a fun and play and joy and playfulness in that that I mm-hmm. I don't think I experienced just at for a long long time maybe until the Weird Al book and that brings me to the story I saw a banjo in the background there while we're recording <laughs> and yeah. this wonderful family I married into um, my husband's mother is in charge of the arts council in this small town called Los it's Los Banos they pronounce it Los Banos um, it's in the mm-hmm. Central Valley of California. Um, my mother-in-law organized this special day where she invited different banjo players from all over to come. Oh, wow. And they had the uh, city actually officially change the name of that town for one day to Los Banjos. 
Oh man, oh, that's was, so cool. It was so fun. <laughs> yeah, that's been a fun instrument to learn. Um, it's really a really natural instrument just due to the way that it's tuned. I'm not a master of banjo tuning since I've gotten pretty used to guitar, but it's really fun. I remember, I mean, when I was in high school, I heard Bela Fleck for the first time. Yeah. And as a little jazz nerd, it completely blew my mind to hear somebody <laughs> playing banjo in that way. I mean, it still kind of does blow my mind to listen to him. Yeah. But yeah, it's a beautiful instrument. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, the sort of communal thing, I guess, feels like it's missing sometimes mm-hmm. from the really focused, advanced music programs mm-hmm. that are out there now. Mm-hmm. And kind of missing, you know, from like the way that music exists online. There's a lot of focus on the individual still. I guess it's a, a very American thing in general. Yeah. But there's also kind of an element of history missing, or at least there was for me as a jazz performance major. It's one of my major critiques of my education was that... Oh, interesting. I learned some history. I mean, we learned history insofar as, okay, you're playing saxophone. You need to know who Stan Getz was and who Charlie Parker was and who John Coltrane was and understand their albums and context. Like, there was a very music-focused, you know, approach to history. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of discussion of the culture or of what it even meant for this music to have come into being, you know, in the 20th century in America. And it's something that I've since gone back and learned and have kind of, I kind of wish that I had understood that context at the time. Did you find the same thing was true of, um, of studying voice performance? Well, that's interesting. Well, I pivoted to music history. So I be, my right, focus yeah. became all of that. And I know in my day, there was some uh, controversy. I think it still exists a bit about whether or not you're focusing on the music as music, or if you're right. just fo- focusing on the history and the cultural context. Um, I don't think you can divorce the two, of course. Um, and I, uh, for me, the music that I became really interested in was music that was really connected to an interesting point in history. There were a Mm. lot of different trends and cross currents and um, political movements, something really powerful happening in and around the music. And and I would really dig into that music. Um, um, And, uh, you know, music is always connected to politics, but those really pivotal political musical moments became what I was really attracted to. So um, that's when music really came alive to me for some reason. What was the what are what is an example of that of a sort of pivotal political musical moment? Well, I encountered one um, when I studied abroad um, in undergrad. I was in Vienna at this moment when this right wing leader got elected. His name was Jörg Haider, um, and a conductor named well, it's a big name conductor Zubin Mehta said he mm. would not come and conduct in Vienna as long as Jörg Haider was in power. Um, and during that semester I was there, Jörg Haider stepped down and then Zubin Mehta came to Vienna and he performed this concert outside. He performed Mahler's Resurrection Symphony and he said, um, now Vienna is resurrected. And he, oh man! and it was, I still get goosebumps just thinking about sure. it. It was this wild moment. And then to have Mahler's Second Symphony played, which is just a you know very rich musical world. Um, and it, the streets were so crowded. The, it was just all these people out to hear that and in that moment. And I was just hooked. That was a really pivotal moment mm. for me. Mm. 
And then I ended up doing my dissertation about that one of these interesting musical moments. I don't, it was, it's a wildly controversial point, you know, music during the Nazi era. I researched this orchestra that existed during the time, a Jewish orchestra, the, the Yudische mm. Kulturbund, and it existed with the permission of the Nazis. And it became this very uh, controversial entity, which was a safe space for Jewish musicians at the time. But there was also this controversy. Did some people stay longer than they should have because there was this safe space? Did it lull them to, into some sort of false um, sense of security? Wow. And there was also a lot, to, a lot of controversy within the organization about what is Jewish music because the Nazis wanted this organization to perform Jewish music. They wanted this this really concrete example of Jewishness and music that really did not exist. Uh, Jewish, uh, like all national music, it, it's negotiated in time and space. There's nothing mm -hmm. inherent. You know, one person based on their background is not going to do something essentially in music, um, even though that's, you know, that's how Nazis approached people. So it was this segregation of music that huh. uh, kind of, prepared the segregation of people. That's so interesting. This was was this in like the 1930s, 1920s? Yes, yeah, the organization it was one of the first musical acts. It was 1933. This organization came about right at the start of the Nazi era and it lasted mm. through 1941. So that's um it was yeah, that's what I wrote my first book about um a Jewish orchestra in Nazi Germany and and I wrote a book about a really interesting woman named Annalisa Landau who worked within that organization and then emigrated and ended up um in California um working with emigre composers. Um so yeah, another interesting moment where all of these um trends, social, cultural, gender, politics mm. all come together in music. That is a really interesting example since it's somewhat sinister, right? In the end, it's 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 using what appears to be a celebration of a, a people's music to actually, you know, yeah. to a sort of nefarious or a fully nefarious end. Yeah. That I mean, that pivots me a little bit, I guess. Or that makes me think of um of your work talking about music and punishment and mm -hmm. music used as a kind of, you know, not just as the celebratory unifying thing, right. but as something, you know, it's actually that can do harm. Yeah. Um, so you also wrote about a, a book about this in 2012. This is Music mm -hmm. in American Crime Prevention and Punishment. Mm -hmm. I guess, can you tell people a little bit about the thesis of that book and the subject matter? Yes, this book did kind of come out of my work on music during the Nazi era. In that book, uh, music was this place of solace, but it also had, there was also a lot of other things going on there. Right. Um, and then I happened upon this interesting article about the use of Barry Manilow to chase away teenagers. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's funny, I always kind of laugh, it sounds ridiculous, but right. there was a, a, a sinister point in this, the music was being used to mark space. Um, uh, as, as space as belonging to one person and not another person. Um, and I started seeing more and more examples related to that of music being used in kind of a destructive way. Um, and one of the big ones was rap lyrics being used against their authors in, in courts of law. Um, rap. Mm. So uh, that, that not only was a negative use of this art form, but it was also, um, you know, a real racial bias built into that uh, whole idea. Right. And an example of that being like you're saying, basically, you're rapping about hurting someone or shooting someone, thus 
you must actually be engaged in criminal activity. Right. And sometimes these lyrics were very vague. It was nothing concrete, mm-hmm. but then they would still be introduced and it had this real biased effect. Um, uh, so it was it was just not not something fair. And I'm saying it in the past test tense as if this doesn't still happen. It very much (laughs) still happens. I just read there's Mm -hmm. a Hulu documentary about all of this, and I naively thought if I write about this, it will stop. (laughs) That was 2012. (laughs) Here we are in 2023, and that's still happening. And it's it Mm -hmm. just denies the whole art form of rap. There's so much that goes into rap that makes it, it not a literal text. And here it is being treated as a confession or a literal text when it is not. Right, right. We're like, Bob Marley did not shoot the sheriff. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's so much that goes into that art form that that negates mm-hmm. that use, and not to mention the, the racial bias. Yeah, it is always striking when you see a judge or an attorney in a court of law having to explain that art you know, takes artistic license and isn't reality anytime that happens. It feels kind of embarrassing for everyone involved, even though it seems to still need to be uh, explained. It seems so obvious. A lot of that book to me seems so obvious, but it it hadn't really been stated, um, these destructive uses of music and the whole idea that music can be used in that way. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes it's music lovers that are writing about music and we're invested in music on a very personal level. So it feels very weird to be writing about music as something negative. Um, but mm-hmm. to me, um, music is all of those things. And it's that's part of its power, that it can be used in very positive ways and it can be used mm-hmm. in very negative ways. I don't see anything wrong with that, but you would be surprised how many times people have asked me, "Don't, but don't you like music? As if right. that's why I'm writing about that. That I mean, that must be a challenge with your work in general, is that you, <laughs> you do sort of explore some of the darker sides of music. Mm-hmm. Even though those, I mean, those are just, they're aspects of music. You can't pretend they're not there, even right. though it is lovely to embrace the wonderful things about music. Right. I mean, Strong Songs is essentially just that. We just talk about how awesome music is every yes. week. That's great. But the things that you're talking about are, are very real and very worth right. investigating. And that can be part of how awesome music is, that it can yes. be all of those things. That's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the power of music. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is the one art form. Is this true? <laughs> anytime I say something, anytime I say something that's that's like a, a sort of superlative, yes. I always question it. Yes. But it is kind of it is certainly distinct in how it physically impacts the listener. I mean, it actually is a physical yeah. thing that touches you. Mm-hmm. When you turn music up really loud, it can physically hurt you, right? Um, because it is actually hitting you, and that's what makes it so powerful. It's what makes it so you know, connects to us on this really fundamental level. It's why when you're in a room with people and the music is pumping and you're all dancing together, yeah. it feels like you're physically connected. But right. it can also have, you know, dar- a darker side. Right, as torture. And that's one of the chapters, music as torture. Right, you talk mm-hmm. about this as well. And I think mm-hmm. that is a very interesting aspect of music is that due to its physical nature, it can be used to inflict physical pain on someone. I'm thinking about its use as a siege tactic to keep people from sleeping uh, during a police siege or the way that music can fit into a broader torture regimen, like uh, during the hunt for Osama bin Laden, the way they would play really loud music to keep people from sleeping and to kind of interrupt their thoughts so that they just start to mentally break down. And it's horrifying. It's like everything that I personally think music shouldn't be, but that music can be. Right. And there's testimony about how horrific that torture was with uh, during the so-called war on terror. Um, And there were lots of news headlines at that time that did 
make it into a joke because it does sound funny that you're using a Barney's I love you in torture. Um, But when you break it down, what's happening, this this sort of repetitive firing, this internal loop that that breaks your connection with your own internal monologue, uh, it's a real challenge to identity. And music was used as torture in that way, uh, not only to prevent sleep, you know, at these very high volumes, Mm -hmm. uh, which had a physical impact, like you said, um, but also to challenge identity. So um, with uh, Muslim prescriptions against the women of or or music by women to then have a torturer purposely Mm. pick, uh, you know, Christine uh, Aguilera's A Genie in a Bottle. That was that was a challenge to identity. So, um, and there's overlap there with use of music uh, during the Holocaust. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, that's it. It is it is serious, even though it sounds silly. And I think I'm still um, contacted quite often about those sorts of stories. Uh, and when things come up about music being used to repel teenagers or in crime prevention because of the choice of music, it can sound funny. I think a couple years ago, mm-hmm. it was Baby Shark was being used in public right. spaces. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds... <laughs> it's funny in that most of our interactions with Baby Shark are funny because it's one of yeah. the most nuclear-powered earworms yes. ever recorded. Yes. And I think I've, I'm trying to think if I've answered a question about that song specifically on the show. People write in to ask about earworms a lot and yeah. how they work. Um, where I'm no, you know, I'm not a neurologist. I don't really understand it, but I know my own experience of those kinds of songs. And yeah, yeah, it's a combination of the the way the song hits you and you kind of can't get away from it. And then the way that it just starts looping in your brain. Yes. Um, and that song, I mean, it really is. It's easy to laugh because when I think of it, I laugh kind of ruefully about the last time I had Baby Shark stuck in my head. Or I was it watching Ted Lasso because they they make a chant for one of the players is Jamie Tart, and it's like Jamie Tart, do 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 do, and it's a joke. But then whenever I say that, I just now have probably gotten that song stuck in yeah, absolutely at least not zero number of people's heads. So it does seem funny. But then you think about it, take that to its logical extreme. Yeah. And it stops being funny pretty quickly if you can't escape it. And also you're in a kind of horrible situation and it's it becomes kind of emblematic of all the other ways yeah. that you're being harmed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think it was Oliver Sacks who talks about earworms and how they just start yes, to fire yes. on repeat. You know, you lose in control music of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great book uh, for yeah. anyone listening who wants a, a good book about music and the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of pretty, a lot of pretty wild stuff in that book. Yeah. Well, in a slightly lighter topic, and uh, but actually pretty earwormy as well. I want to talk a little bit about Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> because you wrote the book or a book, but I would say the book about Weird Al. Weird Al, seriously. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about just your relationship with Weird Al and the process of writing that book. So can you just talk about that a little bit? That was a fun moment. Uh, you never know where writing about music will take you. And I always follow <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I always follow my interests, what is kind of on my mind at the time. And oftentimes, Oftentimes I want to take on the way music is misunderstood or the way it's Mm. misused. Um, So with my first book, it was this kind of fixed thinking about music and Jewish music. Um, I wanted to challenge that. And with the Music and American Crime Prevention Punishment, I wanted to challenge this idea that music is solely positive. And then I started to think about that dichotomy between serious music and funny music, that funny music Mm. is seen as somehow lesser. And I knew that that was just unfair. So much goes into humor. 
humorous music. Uh, and, you know, just like so much goes into a joke, then you add music on top right. of that. That's that's a lot to master um, and do at the same time. Um, and I had the idea, well, if I'm going to write something about humorous music, it's Weird Al is the first name that came to my mind. And I sometimes get wildly brave from the privacy of my own home in writing letters or <laughs> sending emails. Um, and I, I tried to reach out for this interview and amazingly it happened. And then I was just like, okay, this book is, this book is happening. Um, nice. and, and Weird Al, not only was it so fun to dig into the significance of his music, because he's a very, very smart man. He's a perfect representation yes. of what I wanted to talk about, how much actually goes into to making music funny. Um, but he's also very, very nice. And at that time, you know, there was a lots of stories and these Me Too stories, and I was getting quite mm -hmm. depressed about the state of the world. So it was really wonderful to encounter this man in LA who was so, so nice, so, so smart. Um, and and this music became this book became about a lot of different things, including gender. Uh, Weird Al takes uh, on some very interesting songs, um, mm -hmm. sometimes dealing in toxic masculinity, and he flips them into these kind of absurd things that poke fun of that whole posture. Um, so I had a lot of fun writing a chapter about those sorts of songs. Um, and, and, and Weird Al was wonderfully cooperative and nice along the way. My first interview was actually at his house. They invited me to his house. Oh, I wow, was really? Very, very nice. Very, very generous. <laughs> I was so That's nervous. Awesome. He's, he seems like a nice guy and that's it. And almost to the point that it feels like it's part of the bit. I know it's not. I know that no. he's like actually just a nice yes. man, but the joke of him has always been that he is not, the rock star that the rock stars that he parodies. Yes. And, like, have you seen the new movie Weird? Have the, the Weird I Al story? seen it? Are you kidding <laughs> I me? I mean, I guess you wrote the book. Of course, <laughs> I love you watched that it. movie. Um, a wonderful movie. Daniel Radcliffe, wow. truly a uh, just a treasure. That guy really turned out okay, he, didn't he? The greatest <laughs> role. I wish they had had a theatrical release so that could have been I up know. for an Oscar because that would have been wonderful. What a performance! Yes, and. There's something in that joke, and then also in the way that Al talks about his career in the weird, uh, the VH1 behind the music. Mm -hmm. He makes the same joke in that, where he yeah. basically says, and then my next album didn't go double platinum, it only went single platinum, and that was the dark period for me. And you can tell, this is a guy who just doesn't have a dark period. No. The way that so many of the artists that he's parodied do. He, he just yes. didn't really live that kind of a life. And so he, he exists in contrast in a way that is also present in his music, yeah. where when he sings a song that is normally this very swaggering, like you say, embracing elements of toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. of sort of like, I'm a big man. When Weird Al sings it, partly the way that he sings, he has this very bright, masky, like musical theater voice. Yes. And then usually what he's singing about is like lunch meat or something totally silly. And so it, it completely subverts yeah. what the song, the vibe of the song originally in a way that is, it's subversive. I mean, it really just continually is subversive. Yes. And yes, you're right. And part of the layering is just Weird Al and his persona. But like then himself. Himself. But then what he does with the music, like I love his parody of Nelly's Hot In Here. Um, <laughs> he takes this and he makes it into a, a bickering couple like you need to take out the trash 
Um, and <laughs> uh-huh. and in the Nelly song, it's like it's getting hot in here. Take off your all your clothes. And the mm-hmm. woman's like, yes, absolutely, just real robotic. That was not a right. direct quote of the lyrics. Um, right, but more or less. More or you know, less. Yeah. More or less. But with Weird Al, it's like, why don't you take out the trash? And the woman's like, no, you disgusting slob. You take it out. <laughs> like, it's just uh-huh. so great. So, yes, you have these multiple layers in the parodies with Weird Al, the music, mm-hmm. the lyrics, the, the original song, and then Weird Al's persona, too. It's just, oh, I, that was a very, very fun book to write. Well, let's talk about your most recent book. So your newest book is Can't Stop the Girls Confronting Sexist Labels in Music from Ariana Grande to Yoko Ono. Um, And I've read an early copy of this, and it's coming out, I think, right around when this episode will be coming out. So Mm -hmm. people listening to this can go and read it. This is a pretty dense and pretty challenging book. I can imagine it was quite a process writing it. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess let's start with just your sort of overview of the process of writing it and what you set out to do with it. Yeah, this was interesting. I didn't quite see this book coming, although I had been dealing with the topic of gender and music for a while. And of course, I've dealt with it in my own life. So I think all of those factors came together um, and the pandemic happened. Um, and I was making very questionable leisure decisions, I think, as a lot of people. <laughs> I think we all were. <laughs> right? A lot of people do. And everything I put on just in those coping moments ha- seemed to have some insulting reference to Yoko Ono. It just, it was wild. Mm. I had this period of a couple months where it just kept happening in these strange things. I was, I read some chiclet book that had a scene where, um, a character is talking about uh, dating a guy in a band and the band breaking up mm-hmm. and someone else saying, oh, you know, you're the Yoko, you you were the Yoko. Um, and then I watched, um, I watched My Soul Called Life, uh, old throwback from way mm. back when, and that had another moment about Yoko Ono. Um, and it just kept on happening. Even I, I also watched Oh Hello, um, during that time, the Netflix special is hilarious. I love everything about that, mm-hmm. except for this moment where a raccoon becomes the Yoko Ono character <laughs> coming between these two friends. Um, mm-hmm. So it was just getting out of hand, and I started to just wanted to, to wanting to dig into that. How did this woman's name uh, become such an insult? And you know, there's great examples of this. This is Spinal Tap, and The Simpsons mm-hmm. has a Yoko. Uh, Yoko bid and it's just it's just everywhere um and I uh, for some reason kind of glommed onto this and I became angry and it was a big contrast from my time writing about Weird Al where I gosh that was just a glorious period of my life digging into all of that and then I came upon the Yoko Ono references and all of that fun just disappeared and I was Mm. just angry for quite a while (laughs) Sure. Uh, um, so I started looking into that and how so many other musicians were called a Yoko Ono. Um, and then I started to think about all the other labels that women deal with. Um, and it snowballed from there. 
Um, and I felt like I was a detective following a serial killer, linking these words between mm. all of these different women, seeing these patterns throughout our culture um, and, and trying to somehow represent that in a responsible way. That was a big challenge in this book because I'm talking about trauma and I'm talking about abuse and it's not my own trauma or my own abuse. So how do I represent that responsibly? Um, so there were lots of questions on how do I even write this book and bring that across responsibly? Yeah, I can sense you wrestling with that throughout the book. And that is actually a wonderful description of it. That's how I felt reading it is you start with this initial story, the story of Yoko Ono, and then it just feels like that follows through to Courtney Love, to Britney Spears, to Taylor Swift, to, you know, um, FKA Twigs, and, and onward and onward mm -hmm. um, to Ariana Grande, to the modern day. And it's a, it is a downer because you <laughs> see the way that some of these, um, you know, these words, these ways of talking about women, these ways of viewing women in music, they haven't gone anywhere. Like, mm -hmm. it's it's very easy to say, oh, well, we're doing better now, you know, things will be better. But it's challenging to look at something that's been going on for, I guess, 60 years, whenever that first, you know, when Yoko Ono first came yeah. on the scene, and see that it's just still happening just in yes. slightly different ways, and not feel a little bit dispirited by it. I know, I wanted to kind of look towards the future, uh, look towards positive change. And I, I was working on that section, trying to look at these interesting moments. There are, you know, so many women doing interesting things to address sure. all of this. Um, and then I watched the movie Metal Lords on Netflix. I, I don't mm. know, another one of my choices. Um, and there was that <laughs> same Yoko Ono reference again. <laughs> I was just yeah. Like, ah! So let's let's go over the Yoko Ono thing just just briefly to kind of dispel it for the few people out there, I'm sure, who yeah. would just casually be like, oh, don't be a Yoko Ono. You tell a story in the book about how you're at a party, uh, a Beatles-themed party, mm -hmm. and you dress up as Yoko Ono and kind of the spirit of her after having done this research, being yeah. like, whatever, Yoko Ono was cool. Yeah. Um, and someone makes the joke to you, oh, you're going to break up the party. Uh -huh. And that joke, to me, it's like the kind of joke I could so easily imagine so many people who just don't really know the story making yeah. because it's so ingrained yes. in the culture. It's like, well, yeah, Yoko Ono, she's like the woman who broke up the Beatles, the yes. quote unquote greatest band of all time. So I guess, yeah, what really happened? Like, what was Yoko Ono's role with John Lennon and with the Beatles? Well, it was fun in this recent Peter Jackson a documentary, that very long docu-series, to really watch yeah. her sitting there in the studio, sitting there, just doing her own thing. She was just mm -hmm. there. I could see her... <laughs> scrolling on her iPhone if she had had an iPhone. You right. know, she was not giving input like what you see in This Is Final Tap with the kind of Yoko character kind right. of taking the over the cliche idea of whatever she was doing. Um, mm. So that did not happen. Then you also have so much testimony about what was actually happening with the Beatles, how it was, there were uh, so many people trying to leave that band at that time. And you see that yeah. in the series also. Um, and you have testimony from both John Lennon and Paul McCartney. You know, the end was in the air. This wasn't mm -hmm. her. Um, so there's that aspect of it. There's just no proof that it was her. There was so much proof that uh, it was other people. And it at the just time, seems, it seems evident. These guys had worked together and they were kind of tired of working together. They, and they wanted done. to go do other things. It yeah. was so fun to see George Harrison just casually quit in that series. Like everyone <laughs> yeah. was quitting. 
Then on top of yeah. that, you have this idea that comes back. And it, I just had an experience this uh, week where I, I said my book is coming out and this very sweet uh, female uh, music teacher um, said, oh, I can't stand her music, Yoko Ono's music. And I was like, mm. okay, that's the other one. And you have this right. horrible clip um, that's often made fun of um, with her playing with John Lennon or singing with John Lennon and Chuck Berry and just, you know, supposedly ruining it. Um, but if you look again at the context here, she was involved in very avant-garde circles of music. And as right. someone who has studied music like you, you know, like there are these interesting male composers that are quite respected, like John Cage, these figures mm -hmm. that question what is music and somehow do that in these, you know, what some might think strange ways. So in the context of the Beatles, you know, John Cage would sound very strange. Yes. Right. But in the, in academic circles, that all made sense. And that was Yoko mm -hmm. Ono, what she was doing. She had this program of questioning and, and uh, expanding ideas of what music was, which makes perfect sense in academic circles and in the circles that she was familiar with. Right. But when you put it with the Beatles, people are like, what is wrong with her? So it's, right. that's very unfair, all of that, when you don't know the context of what she was doing. Um, so those two things uh, kind of meld together and this reputation of her being just awful has just persisted forever mm -hmm. in such a cliched way. And it's I'm afraid to even say this right here, because if I do post anything about this, this is when I get really mean trolling comments, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. something about Yoko Ono that just makes a certain segment of the population viscerally so angry and in such an unfair, biased, gendered, misogynistic way, it's it's almost frightening. Yeah, it's it is intense how strongly that myth mm -hmm. is like it's almost a foundational part of our yes. understanding of music and pop culture, which then yeah makes it the res the response to sort of poking at it yeah. feels very strong. I first so I listened to the podcast You're Wrong About, which is a wonderful podcast about things that we're wrong about. Mm -hmm. And each each episode sort of looks at a different topic and and reinvestigates it. And they do they have a whole running series on just maligned women basically mm -hmm. of history of literature of art and they had an episode on Yoko Ono that was really eye-opening for me uh, when I first listened to it. Some of the some of the same ideas you're talking about and that you talk about in the book just that she was this unusual provocative artist mm -hmm. that John Lennon was very attracted to that because he was I think a little bored by what they were yeah, doing in the Beatles questioning. just like they were all kind of stuck you know they'd been doing this thing mm -hmm. none of us can even understand what it would be like to be in that band and to do that for even as long as they did it just because it would be it's a completely unique bizarre experience and he's like, hey, he met this woman who really likes to do strange stuff and they can go do have fun and do weird stuff together and go, you know, challenge each other and and, and be odd artists. And that yeah. sounds really fun. And you can actually kind of understand why he would be drawn to that. Mm -hmm. And then just the way that that kind of gets twisted. I, I really like what you're saying about the way people talk about her music. Mm -hmm. um, Ornette Coleman in jazz is, you know, the, the free jazz saxophonist really got pretty out there sometimes. And there are these recordings of him playing, I think he plays violin or he'll play trumpet and he doesn't really play those instruments. So he's picking them up and making just 
terrible sounding, <laughs> you know, noise on the instrument. But a lot of people still accept it because it's yes. like, well, you know, Ornette, like, you know, he really liked to push the envelope and try unusual stuff. Yes. And there's totally this double standard mm-hmm. where some people and, of course, men are allowed to do that and and women aren't. Or it's it's yeah. viewed as like proof that, oh, well, she's not a serious musician. You right. Know, she, she's, she's, you know, ruining things. Yeah. When you look at the language that sort of flows from one, you know, one woman to the next to the next over the course of this book and the history of just like how hard it's been for mm-hmm. women to break through and arrive on their own. Courtney Love is another great example yes. of this, of someone who's just so maligned and people have yes. such strong feelings about mostly just because of her presence and like the, in media, the way that she was mm-hmm. covered and written about almost nothing to do with her music or mm-hmm. her as a person. Those challenges are the reason that there aren't more women yeah. <laughs> that were, you know, prominent in music throughout that time period. And yet that forms a self-reinforcing loop. Yes. And this is something I think about a lot that I'm curious for your thoughts on. Um, when I was teaching jazz, I taught jazz at a high school in the Bay Area for seven or eight years. Um, we early on, we had a new band room. And the head band director and I were having the kids kind of de- uh, decorate the band room. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he had like some old jazz calendars that just had a picture of a famous jazz artist for each month. And he yeah. handed them out to the kids and was like, hey, cut these up, put the pictures up around. You know, we'll have these famous musicians that most of you probably don't know because they're just high school kids. They don't know who Dexter Gordon is or whatever. Hang them up around and we'll have all these jazz legends around the room. So they do that and they hang it up. And then another teacher a little bit later, points out to us, you know, you don't have any women up on the wall. Or maybe like Ella Fitzgerald is there. But there are no, you know, female instrumentalists, certainly. And there's a hugely disproportionate number of men. And at the time, I was like 24 at the time. And it, I found it very challenging because mm-hmm. I was like, well, yeah, but like, it's just a calendar. First off, like, well, we didn't make the decision. We just handed out a calendar. Right. And then realizing, well, that wasn't a sufficient answer, both because the calendar accurately represented the fact that most instrumentalists in jazz were men, but that that fact meant that as an educator was actually more important for me to represent women on the wall and to kind of highlight women like, I don't know, uh, Mary Lou Williams, Melba Liston, female instrumentalists, as well as singers who pushed the art form forward because they did so in spite of all of the things that were keeping them out and keeping them from playing. And so then that just kind of reinforced for me that noteworthiness is something that's decided upon basically by historians. And you can just teach all the noteworthy musicians and then you wind up teaching a lot of music by men because men were in a position to make noteworthy music. And that's a real challenge for educators, balancing between the legitimately noteworthy achievements of every single one of those musicians that we had up on the wall and also redefining noteworthiness to have a more expansive meaning. Like Mary Lou Williams is noteworthy for her piano playing and she's also noteworthy for doing that as a woman yeah it's a real challenge in so many different ways um there are some amazing uh, women doing work trying to get information out about female composers and female musicians who did exist Mm -hmm. there's a nice book right now wonderful book right now called quartet by leah broad uh, who talks about four um interesting case studies um uh, but it, there's a challenge. When I was, I wrote this fascinating book about this amazing woman who had such a, 
a fascinating life story, getting an early PhD in musicology at a time when women weren't really doing that um, mm-hmm. or able to do that. Then she worked in early radio in Germany, another thing that was not the norm. And she worked in the uh, the Jewish Kulturbund. Then she immigrated. She tried to get a job in musicology here in the United States, but early on, uh, the whole field of musicology wanted respectability. And one way to get that respectability was to push women out. Um, so she was not able to get a job in academia. She had this remarkable life. So I, I wrote this book and I thought this will get published so quickly because this is a fascinating life. This is a model story for all of us. I thought it would be an easy sell, but, um, uh, and I've had editors that were like, this book is great. Let's talk to marketing and marketing would say, well, we can't sell this book because it's an unknown person. Um, and that's, Mm. I think what a lot of writers, a lot of concert promoters, you need the realities of the world. You need to be able to get this out there. Um, Mm -hmm. so it needs to be somehow marketable. And when it's an unknown figure, that's really difficult. So it's, it's a real catch-22 situation. Yes. And I found myself getting a little angry when I saw this preview for the new movie with Matt Damon about a Nike salesman yes. <laughs> that got made when I had yeah. such a hard time getting this book out. I thought that was a joke when I saw the trailer. I, I actually thought that was a Super Bowl joke and then realized it was a real I know. I couldn't believe it. But that's what we're up against. To You mm-hmm. know, it's like a self-perpetuating system we don't know these women so that how do you get them out there it's not marketable people you know there's this familiarity curve with music when something's unknown it can be difficult then when you start to get to know you're like mm-hmm. oh yeah i really like this um so how do you get that curve going yeah it's a long slow process i certainly find that when making strong songs like i struggle for parody i'm always trying to represent more women on the show Mm -hmm. and then it's always up against the challenge of well what I'm trying to do is teach people about music by using songs that they know to show them things they haven't heard before and a lot of the music they know is by men right there's also an issue that you talk about in the book that I have come in come up against more and more and noticed more and more as I've been making this show and that's how women are often at the very front if they're anywhere in music. So they're the lead singer of the group mm-hmm. or they're the, you know, they're very, very visible, which of course then leads to a lot of the, you know, problems and the downsides that you've talked about of being very visible. Right. Where there are so few women working either behind the scenes, you know, producing records mm-hmm. in the mixing room, you know, being a mixing or mastering engineer or just playing in the band mm-hmm. as a kind of you know, just as a member of a band. Um, Yeah, no, that's an interesting one. Um, I did write another book recently called Insulting Music, and I talk all about these prejudices around the singer or the soprano. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's an interesting dynamic how singing is sort of dismissed as less skilled than these other things, um, and very unfairly, this idea that anyone can sing, um, which is not actually the case. Everyone can start to (laughs) sing, but, you know, to have the real talent, (laughs) I mean, that's that's something special. Um, So you've got that going, and then you also do have this, there is a real visual element to music now, um, and where where it becomes you want to see something appealing, and this focus goes on the woman, you know, the, wanting to see that um, mm-hmm. in a way that you don't have with men. So you've got this woman dismissed up front singing because she's just a singer, quote unquote, and then you have all this focus on how she looks. 
um, which is just wild. Um, I, you know, I'm just reading the stuff currently about Madonna. There's nothing about her singing or anything musical. It's all about how she looks. Um, mm -hmm. And I did have a one criticism about this new book um, that I could have talked more about, um, you know, uh, sizeism and and these stereotypes around the body mm -hmm. and fat phobia. And um, and I started to go down that path and realized that that's a whole book because the amount right, of that's abuse, a new... that's a whole entire book, just that mm -hmm. one issue, um, because what women have dealt with in that respect is just wild and such a double standard when you compare the reception um, of men. Yeah, I think a lot about music school and the way that the jazz vocal was kept separate from everyone else. Mm -hmm. It was always in that same weird context. Like, okay, mm -hmm. this is a jazz vocal class, so there's going to be a singer. They're going to learn how to work with the instrumentalists. It was never just like, yeah, everybody's the same. Right. We're all working with this the same way, which then just built in a sort of lack of understanding and respect yes. for singing in general and for jazz singing in particular, yeah. which, first off, as someone who never learned to sing as a kid and has been taking voice lessons up for the last three years and really trying to learn how to sing, mm -hmm. you're absolutely, that is just true, and I'll reinforce it, that singing is so hard. Yeah. And it's hard specifically because you don't have an instrument to yes. work with. The things that make it difficult are the conceptual things where you have to understand an instrument that's inside of your body that you yes. can't just take apart and, yeah. um, you know, and fiddle with. And you have nothing to hide behind. You, you have nothing yeah. to hide behind. It's just you up there. I really struggled mm -hmm. that with that. And I did continue of where vocal performance was my concept concentration all through undergrad and it was such a hard personal thing so those juries when you're getting criticized I had nothing to blame I couldn't say yeah. oh gosh my violin was out of tune like it right. was all me and it was so uh, frightening to be up there and and also those stereotypes I remember those musician jokes I don't know about your experience in music school but our conservatory we loved those hilarious music jokes about uh the the drummer uh being dumb or you, do you know all mm -hmm. these jokes and the oh, like, sure, course, yeah the viola uh, player um but the the soprano jokes were just brutal and yeah. <laughs> i remember those and and thinking about that you know the the soprano was sort of dismissed as possibly slutty dismissed as mm -hmm. not as bright not knowing music theory these sorts of things and meanwhile i was someone that worked very hard i was in the practice rooms doing my vocal warm-ups trying to work on technique all the time and i was someone who just didn't have the natural talent to push all of that um, where it needed to go to actually really be a great singer. So it was so frustrating to be putting in this amount of work, knowing the dismissal around singers. And it was, right. yes, yeah, it was certainly hard for me to continue as a singer with all that going on. Yeah, it's tough. It's really just a sort of, a, it's such a layered, it's a mix of really difficult things that women are encouraged to be singers more than other, you know, than playing instruments, but then dismissed because right. singing is treated as less than, but then also the singer is at the front of the band. So they're taking more of the heat. It's just like, it's such a, it's, brutal. Yeah, it's really, it's really unfair on, on multiple levels. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about the takeaways from this book because your final chapters, you write about, um, about the song bitch, about the reclaiming mm -hmm. of that word mm -hmm. and about, you know, there is a sense, even in the chapter about Ariana Grande, that women have more tools, you know, to push back. I mean, Ariana Grande is a really actually effective social media yeah. user. And I'm 
am impressed by her. I was impressed by her before, but in reading the book, so many of the quotes that you have from her where she's pushing back on, you know, stuff with Mac Miller or mm-hmm. whatever, she's so clear. Yes, she's right on. In what she, she identifies what's happening and nails it in yes. the space of a tweet, you know, or a short Instagram post. Yeah. Do you see some hope in that? I mean, it sounded, I know it was a yeah. depressing process writing the book. Yeah. And it's, you want to end on a kind of positive note, even if many aspects of the book are kind of dispiriting. But where did you end up on that? Well, there are a lot of really inspiring woman, women and to see what they're doing. And, and it's funny, as someone from classical music, I, I, you know, grew up kind of just ignoring pop music and pop musicians in general. Mm. And to be digging into some of these pop figures that have been dismissed in so many different ways and within my own music education and to see how smart they are in the way they push back. Um, yeah. uh, digging in, there were things I never even really noticed um, like with Taylor Swift, you know, obviously she's doing amazing right now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. she has experienced way more than her fair share of criticism. And the way she has addressed that is fascinating and so clever. I loved looking more into her reputation tour and how she took all of this snake imagery. And it reminded mm. me so much of this Medusa story and how she was forced to become the Medusa and then blamed for being the Medusa. But then she just owns it and she just she just runs with it and it becomes something powerful. Um, mm-hmm. And I love seeing these women reclaim so many of these things in so many different ways. Right. This is in the book. There's a kind of extended comparison between Taylor Swift and the mythological figure Medusa. That's, yeah, really clever. Um, so that's hopeful. Um, there's so many interesting women doing very powerful work. Uh, And it's so much more powerful than I think a lot of people realize once you start digging in. Um, Mm -hmm. And for me also, just being aware of words, you know, we have this whole idea that words can't hurt, but they do. They create this baggage that weighs us down. You know, these cultural myths that we're talking about, like with the Yoko story um, and things that we didn't even, they're so embedded in us that we it takes a while to even throw them off um i realized that i grew up at a time where it was just accepted that britney spears was crazy and it took a Mm -hmm. long time for me to see hold on what was really happening here how am i using this word crazy what is this doing to me thinking about that and the same thing with the janet jackson nipplegate situation that was something i didn't critically think about at the time but then when you start digging into it you go hold on there was a whole other person here that did the this is a scandal this is outrageous yes what is happening here so to kind of look at the language that frames these things and how they inform what we're doing and how we go forward. Um, I know I'm never going to use the word crazy the way I used to. Um, there are mm-hmm. certain words that we just need to be very careful of the baggage. Uh, words like genius also. That's a real coded masculine yeah. word. When I hear someone say anyone's a genius, I'm like, what do you mean? Let's talk about that. I think about that one a lot. That is a challenging word in general. I remember calling Bjork a genius and being like, I'm calling Bjork a genius because she's a genius yeah. in a way on purpose because yes. that word is so rarely applied to women, even yes. though it definitely applies. But even then, I, I think I actually avoid the word in general now. I yes. will say that a piece of music is genius or something right. was ingenious, but really it's, yeah, that's a pretty loaded word, but it's very true. You you talk about that double standard yeah. a lot in the book that women are called crazy where men are called geniuses. I love that you brought up Bjork too with genius. I was recently mm-hmm. thinking about Bjork and I don't, I don't go into her in this book, but she's yeah. such an interesting figure who's often talked about as... I think the genius term 
if we're going to use it, let's use it on Bjork. Absolutely, yes. And then, <laughs> yeah, but in her press over the years, it's often eccentric. That word eccentric comes over mm-hmm. up over mm-hmm. and over more than genius. And then I think of someone like Frank, like contrast that with someone like Frank Zappa, who mm-hmm. is, you know, you could call him eccentric. But you he, sure could. <laughs> <laughs> but he is accepted as a genius in a way yeah. that maybe Bjork isn't to contrast those two i i would like mm-hmm. personally to use the word genius when it comes to bjork <laughs> if i'm gonna yeah use it. it does it is a it's a subtly moving thing and just something that you i at least have to hold out some hope that it'll just slowly improve yeah. because it i guess i can just look at myself and my own use of the words over the years and yeah. just you know when i was a kid in the 90s i would i did not talk about women the way that i do now right. i wasn't some horrible misogynist or anything but it right. was just the culture was different and I was yeah. different and I was learning. And if I can look at my own progress over the last, you know, 30 years uh, of, of sentience, it, it does feel as though people are so- slowly moving in the right direction, even if the industry at large and these larger patterns yeah. tend to keep repeating themselves in in new ways. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it really is a valuable book and everyone should check it out just because it it does provide a through line and a kind of framing for how to think about these words and these ways of talking about women. And if nothing else, it will get more people to stop talking about Yoko Ono and stop using the Yoko as a thing. Yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful chat. At the end of every interview, I like to ask my guests for three music recommendations for things that people can listen to. And I know that you have three things ready. So let's get into it. What's your first uh, musical recommendation? Well, you had said what I've been listening to lately. And what I've been listening to lately uh, spans a lot of different things, just like what I write. Um, I have recently been listening to all the Lilith Fair artists. I'm having a lot of fun with the Lilith Fair playlist. I'm having a whole Mm -hmm. revival in my house. I've been doing something very similar. My partner and I have been have been revisiting Lilith Fair and listening to a lot of Indigo Girls, which yes. of course you have an Indigo Girl, Girls cameo at the end of your book. Yes, having Amy Ray there and Michelle mm-hmm. also with her forward, some of the words in oh that. Oh my gosh, right. We should say Michelle Indigo wrote your forward, oh one of my favorite my musicians of all time. Gosh. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and then one of the, some of the lines in her forward, I just, yeah, wow. wow, yeah, um, I hope everyone checks that out. Um, I could quote that, but I don't need to right now. But Yeah, she is, she's amazing. Yes, I'm on a Lilith Fair deep dive right now. I recommend nice. it to everyone. I'm going to get out my Doc Martens, and I'm going to get out some dark lipstick, mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. Um, I've also been listening to Blackpink. Um, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> I have some friends that are wildly into BTS and embracing mm-hmm. this whole K-pop thing, um, which is an interesting thing. I didn't know moms 
went after BTS, but it oh, is... Oh, sure. I feel it, like at this point, I wouldn't be surprised yes. by anybody who goes after BTS. It's a, it's a whole thing. And I, yeah. from talking with some of these ladies, have gotten into Blackpink, which is a really fascinating phenomenon. The whole finesse of how uh, K-pop is produced is really fascinating mm-hmm. to me. And then that group uh, in particular, there's a real power in that music, but also their story is wow, it's kind of heartbreaking. I just watched this documentary of the amount of work and struggle that goes into uh, all of that music at a young age. Um, So I'm Mm -hmm. fascinated by Blackpink. I'm listening to them. Um, And then I'm also listening to a new album by uh, a friend of mine. Her name is Carolyn Malinay, and she went to Duke at the same time as I did. Um, And she works in this classical music medium, and she's just a very brilliant, confident person who has just forged ahead in this very male-dominated area. Um, and she has an album called String Tunes, and I'm, I'm just so impressed by her. Um, so that's, that's my playlist right now. Awesome. All right. Well, everyone will have to go check all of those out. And yeah, I'm definitely going to be going to continue the Lilith Fair kick just because there was so much great music happening then. Oh, it's um, wonderful. I really, man, Galileo. I could, I'm going to do an episode on that song at some point. Yeah. What a beautiful, what a beautiful song. The whole Indigo Girls. I could go on and on about yeah. them. That's yeah, they're amazing. Maybe, maybe the subject of a future book. Yes. Until then, Lily Hirsch, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, all right. Thanks again to Lily Hirsch for coming on the show. And I really do hope that some of you will go check out one of her books. She's kind of a machine. I'm really impressed by how many books she's written and just her apparent ability to write book after book. I've linked to her Goodreads page in the show notes, which has a kind of breakdown of everything she's published so far. So yeah, go check something out. Thank you all so much for listening to Strong Songs. And as always, a huge thanks to my patrons for supporting the creation of this show. If you want to know more about how to support Strong Songs, go to Patreon dot com slash strong songs you can also find a donation link down in the show notes along with a lot of other links song credits extra information lots of other stuff all right that'll do it for now i hope you're all doing well and i will see you next time around